News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, new podcast we're going to talk about right now that is launching today, and I know I'm going to be listening to this. It's called 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, and it's a deep dive into that horrific shooting that happened back in April. Joining us now to tell us more about it is Sarah Ritchie, anchor and reporter with Global News in Halifax, the host of the podcast. Sarah, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm fascinated to hear all about this. What, tell us about the process kind of uncovering this and putting it all together. Yeah, it's, um, it's, been, it's been a really interesting process. This started uh, with an idea that my producer Alex Cress and I had back in late May. And we had been talking about just how huge this story was and how many questions we still had and how many people were so deeply affected by what happened in Nova Scotia in April. There were 22 people killed, but so many more people um, were really deeply affected by this happening. And, and I think, you know, it really shook a lot of Nova Scotians in a, in a really important way. And we wanted to find a way to tell this story. We wanted to find a way to explore all of those questions and hold people accountable and also to give some space to the families of the victims to be able to memorialize their loved ones in a way that they simply couldn't do during the middle of the first wave of COVID-19. So we talked about that and and we had been discussing how it would be so difficult to do that in the Mm -hmm. six o'clock news format that we work in. And so that's where we we came up with the idea to tell it in a podcast and, and to dig deep into each hour of that tragedy. Now, I've been reading about this as well, and there's so much, I think, that a lot of Canadians don't know about that 13 hours. Uh, So what was some of the information that you learned about this that was new to you and surprising? I think a lot of it has been new and surprising. Probably the most shocking thing that I have learned is that in the very early hours of what happened, and, and this is understandable, of course, because of how quickly this happened and the chaotic nature of what was going on, But in the very early hours of what happened, even the families of the victims don't really have a lot of information in a lot of cases. There's been a serious lack of information coming from the police in general about this story. Um, It's been months since we last heard an official update from the RCMP. Mm -hmm. June the 4th was the last time they gave any update to the public. So even the families are missing information and and the timeline and how to explain what happened in those early hours has been so difficult to put together and there are things that we may never know about what happened that night Um, and that's that's hard as a storyteller it's hard as a journalist you want answers to those questions but it's immeasurably difficult for the families too. Now, speaking of that, we know there was a lot of uh, a lot of questioning, I guess, of the RCMP's actions during that 13 hours. And you mentioned mm-hmm. still no answers. That must be very frustrating for the community and in particular uh, for the family members of the victims. It really is. And it's, it's been such a difficult process to watch. You know, a lot of the families that we spoke to um, through the later part of the summer, a lot of them were participating in rallies and marches uh, to try and get attention from the governments about wanting a public inquiry that has the ability to call witnesses, um, to compel evidence in this case, and, and to really 
give them an understanding of what has happened. That process is underway thanks to their efforts organizing, which, you know, a lot of family members said we should never have had to do that. Um, that process is underway, but it is going to take a long time. And that's part of the reason why we wanted to tell this story in this right. format, because people do deserve answers. The community deserves answers. The victims' families deserve answers. If we can do something to try and get some answers for them, I, I think we'll have done our job. All right, Sarah. Well, I'll be checking it out. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, the airline industry has been looking for and lobbying for help from Ottawa for months now. This morning, we've heard, as you just heard in the news there, the Transportation Minister Mark Garneau says there won't be any help until airlines refund customers what customers are owed and not insisting that they have a credit for future travel instead. People have been pretty upset about that for sure. But we also know that airlines have been struggling. Yet they're not doing themselves any favors either, like this next story and tactic that we're going to talk about. Essentially, it's airlines selling tickets for flights they know are not going to take place and will likely be cancelled. So what is going on here? Well, joining us to talk more about it is John Graddick, who's a faculty lecturer and program coordinator for aviation management at McGill University. John, thanks for joining us. My pleasure this morning. Thank you. What is this tactic that they're doing? Well, they're trying to put out a schedule of flights that they, um, has got uh, a hope of people buying into, and it really is a hope. They're looking at getting the schedule out there, so they're offering a wide variety of services and uh, flights and uh, all kinds of different uh, routes. And I think what they're doing is they're seeing, is anybody going to buy them? And, and then that's where they basically come back two or three weeks before the flight actually scheduled to operate and then look at the flight loads that are being planned for those flights and then start consolidating and canceling flights within two or three weeks of departure. And that uh, does cause some disruption to passengers who had booked flights on those, on those there, those there for after were canceled. So uh, there is going to be some disruption. Right. So like we're buying these tickets because we need to get somewhere and people are planning and relying on that time that the airlines have said this flight is going to go. And you're saying they're just kind of testing us. They're going to cancel. They're going to cancel those flights. I think they're not, they're not canceling any routes. Like if you're flying from Vancouver to Toronto um, on Air Canada, Air Canada would probably, you know, their schedule, the regular schedule is about eight or nine flights a day. It's practically one flight an hour. Uh, and over the last month, they've been operating two, maybe three flights a day. So those six or seven flights that, you know, they have canceled, all those passengers have been protected on other flights. But it does mean that you are, you know, planning to leave on a three o'clock flight or a four o'clock flight. And now you're going on a one thirty flight. Right. So, you know, that's the type of situation that Air Canada is looking at trying to minimize the amount of expenses that it's incurring right. and maximizing, maximizing the number of people it's having on its planes. Is that fair, do you think? Like, they're, they're going to consolidate, which I understand, but then why advertise all those different flights to begin with and let people well, think that? Yeah, that's the issue. The, the issue is really, you know, you know, Air Canada knows it's going to be canceling flights. They're putting out, you know, a lot more flights than they know there is demand for, and they're just going out there to see... Maybe there are other, maybe there's some flights during the day in the month of November or December that would sell better than other times of the day. Uh, and they're just trying to see how far can we, in fact, uh, push 
uh, our schedule so that we get the maximum amount of number of people booking, and then we'll just move all of those people onto flights that we know will be operating. So it, it really is a little bit of a of a, of a, of a deceptive um, promotion of their products and talking about, you know, we know we're not going to fly that airplane. Um, we're not, we know we're not going to fly all those flights. So let's just get yeah. out there, get as many people as we can on the planes and then consolidate. Is this to be expected right now? Though, because it sounds like airlines are trying anything and everything just to kind of stay afloat at this point. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, when you, when, you, when you book a flight, you know, the Air Canada is contracted to get you from Vancouver to Toronto, you know, and I think that, you know, they, they will get you from Vancouver to Toronto. The question they will be on what type of flight and within the conditions of carriage and the conditions of sale, uh, you know, of, uh, of the ticket that you're buying in Air Canada, you know, Air Canada does say that, you know, we will, you know, our job is to get you from Vancouver to Toronto. We'll see how, we be- how best it is for us to get you there. Um, so in these tumultuous times, expect some disruption in terms of your schedule to get from Vancouver to Toronto, as an example. Right. So people may get upset about this, John, and I wouldn't blame them at all, right? Because we, we plan our travels quite carefully for this kind of stuff. Of but in the end, I mean, do we really have a choice? I think, you know, you, you, you can complain. I think that, you know, there's no, there's no doubt about it that, you know, Air Canada is using this tool of, they call dynamic scheduling and dynamic rescheduling. Uh, you know, and it, you know, as 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 close into departure time as they can, and you know, they want to they want that product to be as wide ranging as possible, as late as possible, um, and to catch as many people as who can possibly want to fly. And I think you know that's where Air Canada knows that it's not going to be flying all those airplanes. They're saying seventy five percent less load, less flights in the fourth quarter of twenty twenty. So you know, why should you be publishing all of those flight schedules when you know that, you know, at least half, if not three quarters of them will not operate? Yeah. And I think that's you not, know, that's a question that, you know, should be asked of the, of the management team in Air Canada as to, you know, why are you publishing all those flights when you know right. you're not going to operate? Are they making that clear though? Like if you were booking and they had that very clearly before you booked, um, is that okay? But are they doing that? I, I, I would doubt very much they would do that. But, I, you know, I can't answer that question. I haven't tried it. But, you know, I doubt very much that Air Canada would say, okay, if you want to fly on the 18th of December from Vancouver to Toronto, we have eight flights a day. Which flight would you like to book on? And they won't tell you. Well, the odds of that flight operating are going to only be about 20%. And the odds of, you know, a flight at an earlier time might operate a little earlier, might operate, you know, a higher degree of of occurrence that that flight will operate. So they're not giving that level of confidence to the passenger when the passenger is booking. Do you see anything changing? I know this morning we're hearing that the government is saying, listen, you're going to have to make things right with your customers before you get a bailout from us. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think the government on on Sunday, I think Garneau basically mentioned that, you know, they're not going to get a penny until they get the refund thing straightened out. Uh, But I think the government is really annoyed with the industry. Uh, you know, that it's really procrastinating and dealing with things like the refund mm-hmm. uh, and things like, you know, publishing schedules that they know won't fly is, is another annoyance uh, that is being thrown at the Canadian traveling public by the industry. And I think that's got to be something that's got to be addressed somehow, some way by discussions between transport and the, uh, and the airline industry. All right, John, thank you very much for telling us about it this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. You too. That's John Graddick, faculty lecturer and program coordinator for aviation management at McGill University, talking about what he calls the bait and switch strategy that airlines are using right now. You go to book a flight and it looks like there's lots of flights available for you to fly to Toronto or Calgary or Edmonton or wherever you're going. 
and you book it. And then it turns out, you know, a week before you leave, they tell you, oh, no, no, that flight's been canceled. We've shifted you to this other flight, leaving at this completely different time. And John's pointing out that they didn't actually really intend to fly all those flights. They just wanted to see where the demand was. They're just getting you to book so then they can consolidate you all onto the other plane. So is that fair or not? Have you had that happen to you? This is Mornings with Simi. As I'm sure you've heard by now, on Saturday morning, Joe Biden was officially called as the president-elect of the United States by numerous different organizations. It's almost like they kind of coordinated it. Uh, But we still know there's a long way to go before this thing actually gets finished. In this disputed election, what laws could Donald Trump use in his legal fight to retain power, as he has suggested repeatedly he will do? Well, Lisa Mannheim is an associate professor at the School of Law at the University of Washington, and she spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer. Donald Trump's legal team has filed a number of lawsuits to challenge the validity of the election in various states. But based on your expertise of election law and constitutional law, does he actually have any legal ground to stand on here that could result in an extended stay in the White House? The news that has come out this week is that when We look at the votes that already have been counted, and then we take those facts and we compare them with the very well-established legal process going forward. It has become completely clear that Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. In response, President Trump has tried to question whether the tallies are accurate. And that's something that the law allows him to do. He can question it. He can try to bring claims. But there's nothing that we've seen that would suggest that any of this questioning or any of these claims will actually lead to a change in the ultimate outcome. Ah, okay. So what could happen, though, if Trump continues to insist that the election results are legally invalid? If he continues to refuse to concede to President-elect Joe Biden, what could happen? So in the United States, the sitting president has no official role to play at all in the resolution of election disputes. As a candidate, he's entitled to file lawsuits. He's entitled to participate with respect to observing the process. But Again, as a sitting president, he has no role to play at all. And what that means is that if the sitting president declares uh, that he's the winner, if the sitting president uh, refuses to concede, any of these sorts of actions, they have zero legal effect. And so what's going to happen over the next couple months is that the process will unfold regardless of what the president does in his official capacity. Ah, okay. Interesting. So... If Trump and his lawyers want to win any of these legal claims, what is it that his team needs to do here? So anybody can bring a legal claim, but what is much more of a challenge is actually winning on a legal claim. And in order to win a legal legal claim, what a candidate needs to have is at least three things. So first, the candidate needs to have articulated the um, objection and filed it in the form of a legal claim. Um, And by that, I mean uh, broad accusations of fraud that are stated at press conferences, um, papers that are circulated uh, to uh, media outlets alleging uh, various forms of malfeasance. Those are not legal claims. That has to be translated into a filing that that identifies some sort of rule that's been broken and then provides the legal framework 
to go forward. Once that happens, then there's still two more things that somebody needs to show before that person is going to get meaningful relief. The second thing is that the person needs to actually prove up facts with evidence. So, for example, there's been allegations um, by the Trump campaign that there's been illegal voting in Nevada. And um, when it came to the sort of the rhetoric, the suggestion was that there were 10,000 illegal votes in the state. Um, when it was actually put into illegal filing, however, uh, it was presumably impossible, or at least the, the, the Trump campaign was not able to find evidence of illegal voting by 10,000 people. Instead, they purported to um, submit evidence of illegal voting with respect to a single individual, um, even that evidence didn't end up panning out. Um, and so that's just one example of how you need to not only make the claim, but you need evidence. And then finally, even if you have a claim, and even if you have evidence, you then have to um, successfully argue that the problem you've identified should result in some sort of relief that actually helps you win the election. Um, and so to this end, if we look at a case that's currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, it involves ballots that were presumably cast on or before Election Day in Pennsylvania, but then were received by Pennsylvania officials after Election Day. Now, should those ballots be counted? Should they not be counted? There's a legal dispute over that question. Um, with respect to the evidence, the evidence actually is not in dispute there, at least not at this point. There's agreement with respect to that some of these ballots do fall into this category. Um, but then, then finally, that gets to the question of relief. So even if the Trump campaign with respect to this Pennsylvania lawsuit is able to show that those ballots should be excluded from the count, or perhaps the Trump campaign will switch and try to say they should be included in the count, Either way, the number of ballots implicated is simply not enough to change the result in the state. And so that's an example of how, of how you need to have that third part worked out as well. And with respect to all of the allegations that are out there that, that I've seen, at least, um, they all fail on at least one of these three grounds. Often they fail on two or, or even all three of them. Just as a follow up question to that, I'm curious to know, could Trump's more preposterous claims the ones he's making on social media, you gave, for example, the case with Nevada, could those negatively affect his court cases, his legal cases? To the extent that the Trump campaign is trying to argue that it has credible allegations of election malfeasance, certainly all of the baseless rhetoric that's been circulating is not going to help them when it comes to that credibility. You know, I got to say, what we are witnessing unfold right now it seems, frankly, bizarre. It seems really uncommon. However, in reality, when it comes to election disputes, are they really that uncommon in U.S. politics? Election disputes are very common. Um, we have elections in the United States at least every two years. And the elections are run by the individual states. They're not run by the national government. And it is completely commonplace for an election to be disputed after Election Day, for there to be disputes over which ballots exactly should be counted, for, for there to be requests for recounts. All of this is completely normal. And we have well-established legal procedures in place to help resolve these sorts of continuing controversies. What's unusual here, then, is not actually anything, in a sense, on the legal side. Rather, what's unusual is on the rhetorical side. So the baseless claims of fraud, the refusal to concede even when norms would uh, suggest that the president should at this point 
concede this is what's unusual. But again, from a legal perspective, we're not really seeing anything at all that's unusual at this point. Now, Trump has claimed that he's going to take his legal fight all the way to the Supreme Court. There are six Republican appointed judges on the Supreme Court, which could be to his benefit. Is it possible that these cases could go all the way up to the Supreme Court? So the United States runs its elections in a way that feels somewhat not intuitive, which is to say that our national government doesn't run elections even for national positions like president or members of the House or Senate. Instead, we have the states running elections. And as a result, the vast majority of election-related disputes are resolved at the state level with state courts. It is very rare for a federal court to be involved in a meaningful way with an election dispute after election day. And I know that there's this precedent of Bush versus Gore, which a lot of people look to, but the facts in Bush versus Gore were extraordinary. The presidential election that year came down to a few hundred votes in a single state. That's not what we're seeing this year. In addition, the Florida election administrators were having a terribly difficult time counting the votes. And again, that's just not at all what we're seeing this year. So although a lot of people look to a precedent like Bush versus Gore and wonder if that precedent could predict some sort of change in the 2020 election, from a legal perspective, the two cases just really couldn't be more different. Interesting. Now, as this is your area of expertise, as you've been watching this last week unfold, when it comes to the legal challenges that are being made right now, is there anything in particular that you're keeping an eye on? So this is not the first disputed election that we've had, and it's not the last disputed election that we've had. Um, It may feel like when there are allegations of election malfeasance um, that the officials sort of need to scramble to kind of figure out how to handle it. But actually, we have well-established legal processes in place for resolving these sorts of disputes. And the reason why is because they come up routinely. And so when the lawyers are looking at the current um, legal controversies that are sort of swirling around after the 2020 elections, um, when we look at them and we say, there's really nothing there, we're not making a political prediction. This is just a legal assessment based on fairly well-established procedures that we use at least every two years, every two years or more often. Now, I'll ask you one final question, and it's a bit philosophical, so you can answer it as a legal expert or even just as an American who is watching an election unfold in your country. This election seems to be testing democracy in the USA. Do you think that this election has revealed the weaknesses in or the strengths of democracy in America? A democracy requires that the society and the people in charge um, adhere to the rule of law, which is to say that they respect the legal process and they grant legitimacy to that legal process. And in the 2020 election, we've had some real threats to the rule of law. Um, A lot of the allegations and the rhetoric that's circling regarding these baseless allegations of fraud, for example, um, that is very troubling from a rule of law perspective because it doesn't respect the legal process 
and the need to bring well-supported claims. So that's troubling. But what is the opposite of troubling, which is really uh, something that is really heartening when it comes to the rule of law, and more generally, uh, when it comes to democracy in America, is the model that the thousands of election workers have shown in the lead up to and then after the uh, 2020 elections. These folks have been working around the clock and they have done a spectacular job um, amid very challenging circumstances, including with respect to the pandemic. And the reason why, in a sense, the lawyers don't have too much to talk about in terms of legal problems is because these thousands of people did such a good job executing their legal duties. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, late last week, Premier John Horgan met with members of the South Asian community to try and get their help in getting people to follow the rules to try to control those COVID-19 numbers. Now, some people like me would say that was an effort that was long overdue, but as a result, better late than never, uh, there is a great new challenge to encourage people to avoid getting together. So we thought, let's find out more about this. Joining us now is Pooja Sekhon, the Red FM Program Director. Pooja, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Simi. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, I want to hear all about this challenge. So how does this work? What are you getting people to do? Um, so as you mentioned, um, you know, the numbers were going up and most uh, numbers were coming out of uh, Fraser Health region. And the one reason they pinpointed or identified was social gatherings, house parties. So we decided to create a campaign around this specific thing. And, uh, you know, most of us uh, don't like preaching. So we thought, why not make it into a challenge? So we um, created or we uh, decided to, um, you know, make something like COVID-19 safety champion challenge. So it's basically um, you kind of pledge that for the next two weeks, you would not attend a house party or visit a party or a social gathering. And if someone invites, then you would politely decline. Interesting. You would... What yeah, is, so what you is, would choose social pressure or, I mean, over, uh, you, you would choose safety over social pressure. Okay, so what has the reaction been like? Um, it's been actually amazing. Um, we launched this campaign about a week ago and, uh, you know, people immediately started supporting it on social media. They started calling our radio station, um, you know, accepting the challenge. And then on Friday, we had our provincial health officer, Dr. Barney Henry, she accepted it, then um, Minister Adrian Bakes and uh, MLA Harry Baines, and then um, Jane Adams from Surrey Memorial Hospital, Dr. Victoria Lee from Fraser Health. So the reaction or, you know, the outpouring of supporters uh, is amazing. That is great. So Pooja, what, did you, what have you been seeing before that? Do you think too many people were getting together? Did you know people who were socializing perhaps a bit too much? Yes, that was happening. In fact, you wouldn't believe it. Even yesterday, someone tweeted me a couple of photos of uh, house parties because, um, you know, since we have rolled out this challenge, now uh, our listeners or the people in the South Asian community are kind of also policing others. And yesterday I received a couple of photos, um, you know, of house parties. And it is is surprising that uh, the message is still not getting through. But I guess this challenge will go a long way. And it's, I would say it's bigger than Red FM. It's, it's um, you know, for all of us and any of us, uh, it's, it's very important that we understand uh, to not socialize, not interact. 
And, you know, we, we decided to only do it for two weeks in the sense that if it's more than two weeks, it kind of scares people. Mm-hmm. So two weeks sounds like doable. And then you can keep renewing it. Like I took, I accepted the challenge almost 10 days ago. And after my two weeks are done, I'm going to renew it. Okay, well, you know what? You can count on me. I'll do this too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. You so we got have it. Simi Sarah accepting the challenge now. I sure Great. am. Pooja, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you, Simi. Thanks for the opportunity. That's Pooja Sekhon, the program director at Red FM uh, in Surrey, talking about a challenge that they are encouraging people to take up. Challenge is a great way to do this, right? Essentially making it a contest, not accepting any social invitations for the next two weeks to help us get these numbers under control. So will you do it too? This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing some big news this morning that Pfizer has announced their COVID-19 vaccine is about 90% effective in trials. Now that's press release. They still have to release the data on that so it can be verified, but it does sound promising. Uh, Now some countries like China and Russia have already started administering untested vaccines. uh, So there is a lot of pressure to get this thing going. We wanted to talk about the distribution of those vaccines if and when uh, one does become available. So joining us is Maxwell Smith, who's an assistant professor at Western University and an expert in infectious disease ethics and health equity. Maxwell, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Have we ever had a situation like this before where we have to kind of make these decisions? I mean, we've we've had to make prioritization decisions in the past. We did this uh, during the H1N1 influenza pandemic with, with that vaccine. And generally, we're I think that our health system is generally prepared to make priority decisions, but this is a very unique situation because these are novel vaccines. We don't really know what they're going to look like yet. Even with this information coming from, from Pfizer today, uh, it's still not entirely clear what the, what the implications of that will be for a vaccine program. And so I think a lot of these questions, we have some experience with it, but we really need to fill in the details as we get more of that information. So what are the parameters that we kind of work under for the distribution of a vaccine like this? So I think the first question, uh, which is the first parameter we need to think about is what are we actually trying to do with the vaccine in the first place? We need to set a goal and the goal could be to roll out that vaccine in whatever way will reduce as much death as possible. We could roll it out to stop the most transmission possible. We could try to roll it out to um, perhaps protect uh, certain parts of the economy, or we could roll it out in order to protect those most vulnerable populations in our society. I think choosing any one of those uh, uh, populations or goals will really affect what the rollout and distribution will look like. So I think that's the first parameter that we really need to think about, and that you know, will require some evidence about what the vaccine is capable of doing and who it will have most benefit for. But I think it really needs, uh, requires us to think through the ethical values that should inform how we do that. Right. You talk about we have to know more about the vaccine. Is that because we still have questions, right, about is this work on perfectly healthy people? Does it work on people who perhaps already have the virus? Like, there's still questions. Yeah, I think one of the one of the big questions as well is, how the vaccine can actually be stored and transported. We know that some vaccines need to be kept at a temperature of, say, minus 80 degrees. And uh, that will have serious implications for how it actually is distributed across our provinces and into the, global, into the, the north of our provinces. 
And so those sorts of things will affect the distribution ultimately, and we'll have to be creative about how we actually respond to that. Right. Now, Maxwell, do you think all of these questions and answers, do you think all that's being worked on right now? Absolutely. I mean, the, the trick is to try to prepare and anticipate these questions as much as possible. And the, the National Advisory Committee for Immunization, or NACI, which is a, a, a national body in Canada, released its guidance uh, last week around priority groups. But in it, they said that this is really preliminary and may be changed based on new information that will emerge with the actual vaccine candidate. So certainly there's a lot of thinking going on about this, but we'll, we'll have to remain nimble as more information comes out. Right. So then what do you think is the likely form that you know, vaccine distribution would take? Well, I think we're seeing, uh, if you look to what NACI, that group said, and if you look to what the U.S. National Academies have said and the World Health Organization has said, we're seeing the, uh, a lot of consensus that uh, near the top of the list, if not at the top of the list of people that should be prioritized for vaccination are those high-risk groups, so people that have a high risk of becoming severely ill or dying if they were to become infected, as well as those populations who work with those high-risk populations should be at the, the top of the, of the list. But uh, we don't just need to think about who gets that initial priority. We need to think about the sequencing, who would be next, and, and so on and so forth. So you sort of see um, those high-risk groups being at the top of the list and then moving through to moderate risk and then to low risk as we get more vaccine uh, into our into our country. Right. And so I guess shipping this, making sure it gets all over Canada, you know, coast to coast to coast, as they say, is also going to be a high priority. Yeah. So it's an ethical priority because we, we you know, we can consider everyone to have equal moral value. And so we want to make sure that everyone can benefit from this. But it also has value just in terms of building the immunity of our population. If we have one province or North, the northern parts of our provinces uh, not receiving much vaccine, that will be detrimental to the, to the spread of the, the virus. We'll right. see more virus spread as a result. So it's in everyone's interest to make sure that this is uh, equitably distributed across the country. All right, Maxwell, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate that. Maxwell Smith, Assistant Professor at Western University, and he's an expert in infectious disease ethics and health equity, essentially talking about once, if and when, we get a vaccine, how is it all going to be distributed? Who gets it first? And how do we make that happen? Tough questions that we hope to try and answer very soon. This is Mornings with Simi. So by now you know or should know that a provincial health order was issued on Saturday, and it's one of the more restrictive that we have seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, these are designed to keep most businesses open, but to really restrict social gatherings. But what constitutes a gathering? So there's lots of questions about that. So joining us now is Provincial Health Minister Adrian Dix to try to clear up some of this. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so there's a lot of confusion here about what these mean. So let's start with the whole social gathering issue. Is going for a walk outside with friends considered a social gathering? Well, I think uh, going for a walk is not considered a social gathering, but it can become one, right? You could imagine meeting a bunch of people at the park. Well, that might be considered a social gathering. So, yes, you can go for a walk outside with someone, maintaining the physical distancing that we expect in these times and uh but uh no gatherings no gatherings for example I, you may or may not have a backyard Simi. i don't know but if you have a backyard uh n- not bringing people together in your backyard for a gathering okay so even if you can keep distancing you don't like don't go for a walk with friends no you can go for a walk uh I, very clearly you can go for a walk but what i'm saying is that walk 
uh, can't become a gathering. So sometimes we go for a walk and we meet eight or ten people and suddenly we're in a gathering, right? So what we want to do is uh, we want people to be outside rather than inside. And going for a walk is fine. But you also have to maintain uh, the physical distancing you always need to maintain. And uh, when you're outside people in your bubble, and I think that's an important, uh, an important thing to do. It's important to get outside. It's important to walk, especially on a beautiful, if cold day like this morning so far. But, um, but uh, it's also important to limit social interactions. Right. The purpose of these rules is to limit the social interactions that have been causing um, causing the spread and the transmission of COVID-19. And I think it's important to understand that, that uh, the purpose here is to uh, to limit social situations uh, and indoor group physical activities, for example, that are causing significant COVID-19 transmission. That's why there are rules that say you can have a wedding, but you can't have the attendant receptions and parties, that you can have a celebration life or a funeral, but you can't have the attendant uh receptions and and uh, and events around that because those events have uh, have brought with them significant exposure risks and uh, that's why these particular orders have been brought in place what about important to note sorry yeah i was gonna say ahead. what about restaurants though that's another question so can i meet a friend outside my bubble at a restaurant because transmissions haven't really been happening at restaurants well, that's right. But restaurants also have rules, right? So we have to understand what those rules are. They have COVID safety plans, and we are going to be uh, both stepping up enforcement and our expectation of restaurants and everyone else. So and no more than six people at a table, no table hopping, uh, limited hours of operation, the rules that we put in place on alcohol service. We haven't seen, and this is good news, we haven't seen significant transmission in places such as restaurants or the whole sort of broader personal services industry, you know, hairdressers and so on. We haven't seen transmission in those places because they have COVID safety plans in place and in general have been doing a good job. And so, uh, and, and so in those cases where people have those plans in place, we're trying to keep as much as possible workplaces open. But where we've seen significant transmission, that's at home. And that means... Um, this for this two-week period that we're asking people to do only interact with the people within your basically your family unit your bubble however you define it if you mm-hmm. have roommates the people who live in your home so keep your bubbles as small as possible so even if you go for that walk you don't want other friends that you haven't seen for the last week or two to join you yeah, yes and i think you know this is a particular time so in metro vancouver we've had more than 500 cases in the last two days we've reported in each day so a thousand more than a thousand cases in the fraser health authority and the vancouver coastal health authority over two days so we're asking people to be cautious and to dramatically reduce their social interaction in the case of some particular activities particularly indoor group activities that uh, they need to stop while we both reassess those rules and work with right. those people to make sure they can put put in place. What does that mean? Well, if you're playing basketball, no scrimmages and no games. But if you want to practice your free throw shooting by yourself, by all means. I had an email here from Scott who has a question uh, wanting to know, with the new COVID restrictions, he said, am I still allowed to carpool with one friend to work? We wear our masks in the car. That's not a social gathering. So the short answer is yes. Okay, because obviously I think a lot of people have kind of settled into this routine of how they make things work. You must have been very worried about the numbers the last few days for this to happen. Well, I think everyone is. Um, you know, what we've done is we've 
we made extraordinary preparations through the summer, the 600 more contact tracers, all of the flu shots, all of the preparations we've made in the hospital and so on. Um, but what we want to do is to continue to keep the activities that are really important in hospital children uh, happening, people going to school, surgeries being maintained. And we were concerned uh, in the Metro Vancouver area, which is the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority and the Fraser Health Authority, all the way up to Hope. So it ca- that counts too, right? Mm-hmm. That um, that transmission was simply too high and that we had to have a bit of a two-week a break in that where people we saw provincial health orders, which we don't like to use too often, to send a very strong message that uh, that uh, the rules need to be applied right now and we need to break this rise in right. cases. So absolutely, uh, we have to do this, and just as we had to do it at previous times in the pandemic. Is that how you view this then? This is a two-week break. Just everybody, just two weeks, do this because we have to get a control of things. That's right. And uh, obviously, we're going to have to reassess where we are in two weeks, and uh, Dr. Henry and our public health teams will do that. But yes, a two-week break, we need to take this in doable chunks right now. And what we're asking people to do is dramatically li- limit their social interactions. And I, and I know it's hard. I know people are tired of the pandemic. Uh, I'm tired of the pandemic. But uh, there is progress being made with respect to vaccines. But this period is really important. We haven't seen, Simi, uh, the flu in British Columbia really to date. We've seen some isolated cases. We really haven't seen the flu. But once the flu season starts, that is an extra test for our healthcare system. And it's an extra test for all of us because more of us are going to be having what you might call COVID-like symptoms, right? Mm The cold and flu. So uh, this is a good time. To, br- to start to bring down those levels. We just can't have them rising like this. All right, Mr. Dix, thank you very much for your time this morning. Hey, anytime. Take care. You too. That's Adrian Dix, our Provincial Health Minister, talking about these new public health orders. What changed? More outbreaks, uh, more people in ICU than we have had uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic, prompting these new provincial health orders that came into effect Saturday. Uh, so yes, just limit what you're doing for two weeks. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there's a lot of unpacking and, and kind of reshifting that will result from the U.S. election and everything that's kind of flowing from that. Meanwhile, the Canadian Senate and the University of Victoria are going to be holding a virtual forum this week. And part of what they are going to discuss is talking about that outcome of the U.S. election and the future of the relationship between the United States and China. Why are they doing that? Well, obviously, this has a huge impact on us here in Canada. Remember, the Meng Wanzhou trial is continuing, and we do have Canadian citizens who remain arbitrarily detained in China. So how will all of this affect us? Joining us now to talk more about that is Saul Klein, Chair of the Victoria Forum and Dean of UVic's Gustafson School of Business. Saul, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Why do you think it was so important right now to hold a forum like this? Well, actually, the forum has been planned for well over a year. We knew when the forum was being scheduled that we would be the week after the U.S. election. Um, It also fits directly with the theme of the forum, which is about bridging divides. So uh, the U.S. election, if anything, highlights the the need for us to take action um, to bridge the divides that we're seeing, whether they're economic, social, political. We're living in a very divided world. And the U.S. is just one example of that. We're also looking at the consequences of the pandemic. So the, the theme is really bridging divides in the wake of a global pandemic, but certainly in the immediate aftermath 
of U.S. elections. So given that this has been planned for more than a year, you must have had to make some changes to it because it's now during a pandemic. Yes. So the original plan was that we were going to do a face-to-face event, which is similar to what we did in 2017. But it became pretty clear to us that we couldn't do it face-to-face. We postponed the face-to-face event until 2021. But uh, we're going ahead with a virtual forum. And leading up to this, we've been running a series of webinars, essentially every two weeks for the last couple of months, stimulating the discussion and trying to seed uh, interest in the Victoria Forum that's this week on Thursday and Friday. So business-wise then, Saul, how have you seen the relationship change between the United States and China? Well, we've seen a a very dramatic shift in in tone. Um, And I'm not sure that's necessarily going to change. President Trump might have been a little bit more aggressive in the way he put his points across. But uh, President-elect Biden is no great fan of China either. Um, I think you have to look at it in the context of a deeper um, fight for global supremacy between the U.S. and a rising China. And in that context, the U.S. is still going to be looking to try to constrain or curtail China's economic as well as military activity in the world. Right. But will it be through typical kind of diplomatic avenues or I guess what was the thing about the Trump presidency was that it was unpredictable? Exactly. I think you will see a return to multilateralism where the U.S. will be working more with its allies, which bodes well for Canada. Um, I think it's no secret that Canadian relationships with the U.S. were strained at best under Trump. I think um, the prime minister will have a much better relationship with with, uh, President-elect Biden. That opens up the the doors for more conversations. It also is likely to be seen in the U.S. taking a more traditional approach, pursuing their interests very aggressively, but without the the rancor and the um, unpredictability that characterized uh, President Trump. Right. So then what can, how is China preparing for this? Are there any visible signs of that? Well, I think China has been strengthening their their case for several years now, building stronger relationships. The Belt and Road Initiative is just one example of how they're building ties with uh, other countries in in Asia, Africa, um, and in some cases, even in Europe. I mean, China has been on a, a very significant expansion drive, you know, building those relationships but also trying to get its point across. And to some extent, President Trump gave them an interesting opening that uh, as the U.S. was becoming more inwardly focused, looking at putting America first, China, um, interesting enough, was positioning itself as uh, an advocate for openness and global trade. Hmm, Sounds like there's going to be a lot of interesting discussions then. What do you hope people will get out of kind of participating and listening to this? Yeah, so our our focus is really to think about how do we bridge the divides in the world. And we've got uh, a really interesting uh, panel or set of panels. We have around 20 sessions with close to 90 uh, panelists from around the world, really trying to identify what are the solutions available to us to bridge these divides. Um, I should note the forum is open to everyone. It's uh, because we're doing it virtually. There's no restrictions on access. Um, we do ask people to register, but there's no cost to register. And we'll be on from you know, eight, with panel starting at 8.30 on uh, Thursday morning. Okay, so where can people find out more information about this? 
Thank you for asking. Uh, the <laughs> website is the best source of that. That's www.victoriaforum.ca. No spaces, victoriaforum.ca. Sounds like a plan. Saul, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Hope everybody joins us. Yeah, good luck with the forum. That is Saul Klein, chair of the Victoria Forum and dean of the University of Victoria's Gustafson School of Business. So more information on that forum online, and you can participate. It's free. You can check it out. But essentially, they're going to be trying to unpack the outcome of the U.S. election and the future of the relationship between the United States and China. Also, of course, because of the huge impact that will have on us here in Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about some history now of Vancouver that you may not know a whole lot about. There's a new book that sheds a lot of light on the experiences of some of the earliest women to serve in the Vancouver Police Department. And joining us now to talk more about it is the author and former Deputy Chief Constable in the VPD, Carolyn Daly. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Simi. And what made you want to write this book? Well, I hadn't really planned on writing it, but I was at a, back just before I retired, I was at a meeting with the Diversity Advisory Committee, and uh, they were concerned about the physical requirements for women, felt they weren't really uh, fair. Um, So I went and I spoke with them about the importance of accurate and credible standards, and during that, part of it was giving an overview of the history of the police women as I knew it, and they asked me if that had ever been written down as a whole thing, and I admitted it hadn't, and they asked if I would. So I said yes and took it with me into retirement. No kidding, because you've been working on this for quite a few years, haven't you? (laughs) Well, it was a long project, much longer than I ever imagined. But, you know, once I got started, it became became determined to identify and acknowledge each one of the 125 only women who had served between 1904 and 1975. And I wanted to celebrate their service with dignity. And it's become even more now. It's more than just a complete roster, but an explanation of... uh, of how we got from not there at all to matron and finally to constable. Let's talk about that. Why did you pick the years 1904 to 1975? Well, originally we thought that the first women hired by the VPD was 1912, and that was Laurency Harris and Minnie Miller. But um, once I got into the research and going through all the dusty boxes, I discovered four matrons had been hired starting in 1904 with Matta Raymond. Um, while those matrons were not police constables, they and the police women at the time um, did basically the same job. They walked the beats together, etc. So I started in 1904. Originally, I thought I would do all of municipal policing women, and that became far too large. So I picked the year 1975 to to draw a line in the sand, and that is the year that uh, legislation in Canada um, leveled the playing field gender-wise for all all uh, companies. And that is the year that the, the government took over the uh, recruit training from the Vancouver Police Department, which had been the only one with an academy up till then. Um, and in 1975, three classes were sworn in and those women began as qualified and certified police constables right from the beginning. Right, they weren't called matrons anymore. No, correct. The matrons uh, actually got phased out uh, with the women's division back in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. Right, and I should say here, Carolyn, full disclosure, right, because I have a vested interest in talking about this as well, because that class of 1975 had a relative of mine in it. My aunt was in that. She certainly was, and Sharon Carroll uh, in uh, Class 1 became the first woman to actually break down the, the barriers and uh, begin working with the identification squad. She did a, had a terrific career. She really did. I know I've been living up, trying to live up to that my whole life, Carolyn, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, but let's talk about way back when. Were you surprised to find out that, I think many people would be, that women were such a part of the Vancouver Police Department you know, for most of the 20th century? 
Well, that's right. And it wasn't till uh, I mean, I was naive. I started in 1975. I was in the class after uh, Sharon. And um, I don't think we understood how new we really were in terms of the uh, the level playing field. But when I started doing the research and I went back and back and back, at, uh, there we were in 1904 uh, being hired. And basically, the you know, the city burned down in 1886 and it took a while to get going. But it wasn't very long before um, the cry went up to get some uh, a matron to help look after the women prisoners. So that's where it started. Right. It must have been so hard for some of those very early women in the department. Well, actually, it's hard to say. I think that the the men probably, I'm just guessing here, but I'm assuming that the men then would have been just as happy to have a, a woman look after the female prisoners and children and uh, leave them doing some of the other work in the operational side of things. Um, and that's all part of the pushback that most of us experienced but didn't understand in later years. It was until 1975 that women were hired and uh, there was a women's division until 1974 and they were hired and and shuffled off to the women's division where they did uh, transport uh, women prisoners and look after children and, and uh, women in uh, need. Um, but it was 1975 when it became formalized that the women would start doing the same job in patrol, operational, as the men. And that uh, that caused some problems, a little bit of pushback. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that because you certainly must have gone through some of this as well, some of that pushback. Um, yeah, it was an interesting career moving up through the ranks. It uh, was a little different you're than so I had imagined. Di- you're so diplomatic about that, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be. <laughs> this, this whole book is celebrating. I wanted to, to identify because we found women that we didn't even know had been serving. We found people, uh, Ada Tonkin comes to mind, who, who was hired back in the early 30s, who we didn't even hadn't heard of. So these, it was neat to be able to put together a complete list of roster, but also to celebrate the fact that the women were there and the fact of their career and the fact of their successes. And I think that's where this book really ended up uh, shining. And it's also become, it's also become a, to help women today who are serving understand why they're still feeling some pushback and to help other people understand that there truly is a terrific career in law enforcement if you're interested. Yeah, what was your favorite story then, Carolina, all the, all the ones that you gathered? Oh, yeah, there were so many. Um, I think I'll go with uh, Marilyn McDonald's shots fired. It's a pretty good story about how she and her partner were sitting in their police car and suddenly the windows disappeared as they were being uh, fired at by a suspect. And the story goes on from there. Well, I guess we have to read the book, right? To find out the rest <laughs> of it. Chapter five. <laughs> Chapter five. As I, there were 37 women I was able to actually find and contact of those 125 that uh, were working between 04 and 75. And of those 37, quite a few um, were very willing to share some stories. Some weren't too willing, and that's their choice, but others did. And where the stories fit the, the book, I included them as best I could. Well, I can't wait to check it all out. Carolyn, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That's Carolyn Daly. She's the former Deputy Chief Constable of the Vancouver Police Department. And in her retirement, she has been writing this book about Vancouver's Women in Blue, uh, shedding light on the experiences of the earliest woman to serve in the Vancouver Police Department from 1904 to 1975. They were called matrons right up until 1975 when that was the first class of constables. Check that out if you love a little Vancouver history. It's a great one.